Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to Nottingham Playcast. We're back this month with a special focus on One Night in Miami, which is our main stage production for June and one I'm really excited about. So my name's Derek. I'm here with Fraser. And Fraser, you've recorded a couple of interviews about this show, haven't you? I have, yes. I spoke to Grace Smart, the designer for One Night in Miami, yesterday, which was the first day of tech. And we talk about the design and all the work that she and the team have been putting into it. So stay listening for that. But first of all, our artistic director, Adam Penford, sat down with the director of the show, Matthew Zia, to find out exactly what it's about. I am sat in the Neville studio at Nottingham Playhouse with Matthew Zia. Good evening, Matthew. Good evening, Adam Penford. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Two weeks into rehearsal, started week three for the incredible play One Night in Miami. And how's it going, week three? Uh, good. The company are wonderful. Uh, always a bonus. You know, it is that thing actually that, that they're starting to become the characters, I think, in a way, which often happens in the rehearsal, particularly around now. So yeah, some of them are starting to talk like their characters in the breaks. Uh, I don't know how much they're aware that they're doing that. But yeah, we're starting to really get under the skin of it, the themes of it. Week one for me is all about kind of context, the world, the relationships, the characters, who they are. Week two is about where do you stand on the stage and why. Week three <laughs> this week is is starting to kind of look at the subtext of what they're really doing to each other, I guess. Amazing. And and could you, for those who don't necessarily know One Night in Miami, are you able to sum up what the play's about? I should give it a go on the 25th of february 1964 a young man called cassius clay becomes the world heavyweight champion of the world uh he goes back to the hampton house hotel which is a kind of slightly famous hotel in the segregated south that is uh that that miami is part of and florida is part of uh and so it is kind of known as a, a black hotel and it's where lots of black guests and lots of black celebrities go back to and so Cassius goes back to this hotel with three of his friends. They are Malcolm X, the civil rights leader, Sam Cooke, the soul singing sensation, and uh, Jim Brown, who not many people in this country know, but he was, I mean, the world record breaker on every single record. He was the first person to run 10,000 yards in American football. Uh, he held every single possible accolade that you could hold and then walked away from the sport at the age of 30 by just not turning up to camp one day. Uh, He's always been his own man, very much so. And he then kind of transitions into becoming quite a well-known actor over the next 30, 40 years. And actually, out of all of those, he's the the one surviving member of the group that were in that room. Um, So they go back to this hotel, and they all have slightly different expectations. Some want to celebrate and party. Others want to reflect. uh, And that is where the contention uh, kind of creeps in, I guess, mainly between Sam and Malcolm. And Malcolm has a desire that people can do more with the power they are afforded as as kind of successful black men, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's where the drama starts to emerge in this piece. And like you said, it's located in the, in the early 60s in America. So is the sort of political backdrop important to the events in the play? Absolutely, yeah. So I think it's kind of like an amalgamation of lots of conversations that were happening happening in the 60s around the civil rights movement, ultimately. Uh, within a year of this play, two members of the 
the group of friends within that room have have been shot dead, both of them. Uh, so Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. Uh, of course, Cassius goes on to become uh, Muhammad Ali in about three days' time. Four days later, uh, Malcolm X leaves the Nation of Islam. You know, it's such a kind of hotbed of activity and change. And I guess that's what the play is really about. Four men and a nation on the cusp of change. There's a song about that. <laughs> there is a song about that. <laughs> um, it's. I was incredibly excited that we managed to get the rights to produce One Night in Miami because uh, it's been performed once in the UK before in, in, in London, but yep. this is its regional premiere. Yep. It's an American play by an American playwright. Um, and I fought tooth and nail to get the rights because they're owned by um, the record label that represents Sam Cooke and his back catalogue, yeah. which is quite unusual for playwrights to be owned by a record label. So I had to meet the CEO, uh, Jody Klein of, of Abco Records. Um, son in, of Alan. Son of Alan uh, in New York. And yep. he was um, he very uh, graciously actually allowed us to do it. Uh, but one of the things that sealed the deal was saying that you, Matthew Zier, would be the director of the piece. That's most kind of him <laughs> and you for yeah. telling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and partly because that was off the back, I was able to say that last year at Nottingham Play, House, you directed another play for us, Shabin, mm-hmm. uh, which was by a local writer. Um, just very briefly tell us slightly uh, what Shabin was about and do you think there are any parallels between Shabin and One Night in Miami as two plays? I kind of do, yeah. I think, uh, so Shabin was about uh, the kind of lead up to the race riots in Nottingham in 1958. Uh, so again, a kind of similar time period, I guess, you know, these plays are happening within within five or six years of each other. Um, but I guess the the big uh, thematic link for me is is the very nature of private spaces and how people can I mean now we talk about safe spaces don't we and I guess the Shabin for uh, Pearl and George Brown in 1958 was a safe space for them and their community and this motel room for Malcolm is a safe space even though it has two Nation of Islam uh, minders stood outside of it and he goes around checking for bugs and wires once he's done that, it's become a safe space. Uh, and so I guess there's a, this kind of idea that, that what are the conversations that are had in these private safe spaces by particular groups of, of individuals in this case and in the case of Shabin, uh, well, slightly different groups, I guess. In, in Shabin, it's a group of, of Caribbean immigrants and in um, One Night in Miami, it's a group of incredibly successful kind of at the top of their game uh, African-American men. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I, when I read the script to One Night in Miami that um, reminded me slightly of Shabin alongside everything you said was the, the, the fact that both uh, are sort of a, a bit of a party and, and a music uh, features in both. So tell us a little bit about the music in One Night in Miami. Yeah, I come to Nottingham to do plays with record players in front <laughs> rooms, basically. You do them so beautifully. Thank you. I like music. So uh, the music in One Night in Miami I guess is used as a bit of a tool, actually. Uh, Malcolm, well, you have, of course, you've got Sam Cooke in the room, so uh, you might hear him attempt to write one of his songs uh, very early on. A little bit later on, when Malcolm is trying to coerce Sam into being a different sort of artist, I guess he kind of ridicules some of Sam's biggest numbers and says, you know... Where is the uh, righteousness in singing I love you 15 times at the top of a song? Uh, We've just done some hot seating. That's exactly what he said to him. You think that's righteous? So, yeah. uh, And then later on, of course, Sam, in response to another really famous song of the era uh, by by Dylan, Bob Dylan, uh, says, well, look, I have been writing 
music that I think has a, a kind of political heart and and will speak to people in a slightly different way than than the pop songs have. Uh, so, I mean, no prizes for guessing what that song might be. Uh, but he will sing that song, uh, and it's beautiful and it's vulnerable and it's and it's kind of open. And actually, you know, Matt Henry has one of the most incredible soul voices I think in this country um, so to have him sing that is going to be wonderful he's going to be an amazing Sam Cooke Matt Henry um, yeah. when we filmed the trailer a few weeks ago and Matt sang A Change Is Gonna Come mm-hmm. everybody who was there who were present that day like including the cameraman you know it was such a moving occasion yeah. and even in the read through on the first day of your rehearsals uh, I was present for some of that when they were reading through the script for the first time and he was just kind of he has to just sing a little bit doesn't he sort of just riffs on his own you know it, it was amazing everybody's jaw dropped around dropped around the table yeah no he is uh exceptional and actually he's got a really interesting relationship with sam cook so um matt is a kind of church boy you know grew up in in the world of gospel and that's where he gets his incredible voice cheating church is what i call it <laughs> um it's where whitney got her voice from you know it's where aretha got her voice from it's where people get incredible gospel singing voices from uh and yeah so so he and then kind of fell in love with Sam Cooke as a young child. For the last 14 years, he's been trying to write a play about Sam Cooke. Uh, and then I said, oh, don't worry about that. Come and do this one. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's kind of fascinating. So he arrives with this encyclopedic knowledge of Sam Cooke and his life and his relationship with the Soul Stirrers and the QCs, the Highway QCs, and when he left them and why he left them and what he did and when he changed his name to Dow Cooke and when he added the letter E onto the end of his name. And all of this stuff he just kind of brings into the room for free. So he... Not only is he the biggest Sam Cooke fan, but it just means he has this incredible access to lots of parts of his history, I guess. And how are the other actors, and indeed you as director, um, approaching and handling the fact that they're playing real-life men? You know, It's a tricky one, isn't it? I think everyone's doing an incredible job. Miles Yakini is walking around with headphones on most of the day, listening to interviews with Jim Brown, and just starting to collect the patterns and the intonations that he uses. Uh, similarly with with Chris Calhoun, who's playing Malcolm X. You know, he... Um, Malcolm X has some really precise and and clearly recognisable inflections and and particular pronunciations around particular words, as does Cassius Clay and Connor Glean and, and Chris are doing a great job of collecting them. So, for example, Cassius says Muslim whenever he says the word Muslim. Uh, and it's just little things like that and that kind of Southern Baptist draw that Muhammad Ali has, uh, which is interesting as one of the most famous Muslims in the history of Earth to have such a kind of southern preacher kind of um, pattern to his speech is quite interesting, I think. So, yeah, I think it is that thing of of kind of trying to absorb as much of the character as possible, the real-life human being, and then knowing that that's not something that you want an actor worrying about while they're out there trying to have an interaction with another actor. So hopefully that stuff, the physicality and the voice, becomes second nature and they can just be live and present in the drama of the moment. You have recently been appointed Artistic Director of ATC Acting Touring Company. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I have already said congratulations, haven't I, before? You have, you the have in, in the flesh. Yeah. Um, so uh, where are you at with that? Have you taken over the organisation? Are you programming? What stage are you at? Yeah, uh, so I'm kind of programming. I have taken over the organisation. I was a Pointed in November last year, 
uh, said thank you very much, popped in for two weeks, and then went and made a pantomime for someone else. Uh, then went and made a show about Donald Trump on a golf course for someone else. And then went and made a show about uh, two brothers with different skin tonalities for someone else. And now I'm here making another play for someone else. So at some point, I will sit down. I hear I've got an office and all sorts. Uh, so I will oh, visit. I'm jealous. That. I don't have an office. Oh, well, you should get one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're all the rage. Uh, no, I've, I've I've spent a month in in the office. Actually, we've got a lovely office over the Institute of Contemporary Arts uh, on the Mall. The Queen is officially our landlord, but she doesn't care very much about the boiler. Uh, she um, she lives down the road. It's amazing having a palace at the end of your road. Um, but no, so I'm reading lots of plays at the moment, and we have programmed our first co-production. Uh, which will be, I think I can say this now, I can say this now, it will be with the Orange Tree uh, and then Plymouth Drum. Uh, And I guess it kind of explores uh, what it is to be other in Europe, which feels very now. I've read that play. It's a very good play. Thank you it's very a, much. I think it's um, a beautiful play and has a lot to say about 2019. Um, I also think it's an incredibly hard play to stage. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing just yet, <laughs> but uh, come August, when it's on stage, it will be a thing of beauty. Well, that's how the best. That's how the best productions are born. When yeah. they're challenging, you don't actually you, you don't know how you're going to tackle that starting out. No. It forces it, do you have any clues? Any ideas? Any tips? Oh yeah, obviously I know how I'd stage it. Great. Can you tell me so <laughs> yeah, I can stage it like you? I'll stage draw it, it out. Um, and just taking us back to one night in miami before we wrap up um so you're about to enter week three going into week four Mm -hmm. are there any particular challenges that you feel you've got to overcome either yourself as director or the team before you move from the rehearsal room into the theater um i think the real big challenge but it's a a good one a useful one uh, a welcome one going forward is is the subtext of what's going on underneath for all of these characters and there is some really dark stuff going on for all of them you know Malcolm X's relationship with the nation of Islam isn't just strained it's kind of fractious and beyond because he has uh in the last two months I think uh had a serious attempt on his life at the hands of the nation of Islam um Sam Cook uh has had one of the biggest failures of his career at the Copacabana uh prior to that he lost one of his children in a in a swimming pool accident um and this stuff is all kind of in the play but never really mentioned at a top level surface so it sits underneath everything and I'm kind of interested in how that affects the psychology of the characters and how they're getting at each other and that maybe it isn't necessarily coming from that moment in time but from pressures and stresses that they've kind of arrived and brought into the room with them so i think layering that stuff in is is the next exciting challenge and what do you think um an audience will get out of seeing the production what what do you hope they're going to leave the theater feeling and thinking and i hope they feel like they've met these people that's what i really think i hope they feel like they had the chance to sit down with malcolm x and sam cook and muhammad ali and jim brown and chat and understand them as human beings, not just as icons and legends. Who were they? How did they interact? What did they want in their personal lives? On top of that, and and here's the thing, I mean, I think it's got that kind of barbershop mentality. And if anyone's ever been into a black barbershop, it's kind of loud. People are talking over each other. It's like a party. Uh, It's full of opinion, uh, variant opinion, challenging opinion, contradictory opinion. And I think that's what it is. And it also, if you've ever been in one of those barbershops, as I have many times, uh, it's incredibly entertaining. 
because people are speaking with their whole bodies uh, and being truly alive because they, they don't feel like they're being watched or judged. And that allows them to laugh with their fullest laugh uh, and to be the, the fullest version of themselves. The play set in 1960s, I think it's still p- very politically pertinent. Why do you think it's important that this play is staged in 2019 and perhaps in the UK? Because very little has actually changed. Uh, I would argue very little has actually changed in the last hundred years in terms of the economic status of particular groups of people. Uh, you know, the civil rights movement did happen Uh Again, it's it's kind of like this country. What happened when these big changes occurred is that the intolerance and the racism just got kind of suppressed and modified and became microaggressions or uh, unfair employment practices. You know, it's just shifted. Uh, It still exists. Jim Brown said an interesting thing. He said what they were talking about that room in 1964 is what we would now call Black Lives Matter. Wow. That does sum it up, doesn't it? I think so. It's a powerful play. It's entertaining. It's a great night out of the theatre. But it it will also make the hairs on your neck stand up Mm -hmm. when Matt Henry sings A Change Is Gonna Come. I can't wait to see it. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much. Great to hear from Matthew Zia there. He's a fantastic director for this show and he's always got something very interesting to say, a really sharp sense of what's important about this play and about doing it now. So let's hope we do plenty more plays with record players in front rooms and get him back. We are so excited to be doing the regional premiere, in fact, of One Night in Miami, a hard-won prize, as Adam said, and it's just going to be great spending an hour and a half in the company of these four extraordinary men. certainly is. And you and I have had a little sneak preview of the set as well, haven't we, Fraser? Yes we have it's looking amazing in there they're working on the lighting this morning it's really coming to life now isn't it yeah all those colors really pop it's going to be fantastic and you spent a little while with grace smart the designer to see how she arrived at that so let's have a listen to that I am joined today by Grace Smart, who is the designer for One Night in Miami. How are you today, Grace? I'm very well. I'm a bit hot. It's quite muggy. It's a bit muggy today. I'm good, yeah. Good stuff. (laughs) It's a muggy day, but we're going to be all right. Today is the first day of tech in the main house. We start tech in exactly one hour, so this is is me at peak nerves. Peak nerves. (laughs) How are you feeling ahead of that? Good. It's always, yeah, there's a kind of calm before the storm where everyone's sort of milling around semi-slowly just Mm -hmm. checking out which parts of the set could go terribly wrong so yeah exciting the fun bit yeah the fun (laughs) bit fantastic (laughs) so I was thinking maybe to start just for people that maybe don't know you you have worked with Nottingham Playhouse before just tell us a little bit about what what you've done to get to where you are today well I uh, I trained at the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts and I got into theatre design because both my parents Well, my parents were actors and so I grew up seeing the behind the stage a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh, realising that the set was all made up of flat things was like (laughs) the most exciting thing ever because it was a magic trick. So I went to Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts uh, and then moved to London, or moved back to London rather, and uh, became an assistant on some West End productions uh, and some main house stuff, which was a really great way to learn. Uh, I then did the Limbury Prize thing, uh, which was good. Yeah. Uh, Work turned out well. Um, (laughs) And since then have been a freelance designer. Uh, Yeah, full time. Fantastic. So real 
trajectory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it happened quite quickly. Fantastic. um, Which is cool. (laughs) And you've you've worked with Matthew Zier a few times before, haven't you? Yeah. Tell tell us about how you two started working together. Well, it's well, I don't know what he said, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's funny. uh, We. So there was a module at my university where they would get a real working director to come mm-hmm. in and um, we would do a hypothetical play with that director. And Matthew came to my university and I designed a production of Electra for him in a big grand designs house in the middle of a field. Amazing. With everyone in ball gowns and, and they drowned the dad in the pool at the end. It was going to wow. be, I mean... If anyone's got a few million to spare, it's an amazing <laughs> production. And then uh, me and Matthew kept in touch after that. And he worked with some of the other designers from my year, Frankie Bradshaw, who's mm-hmm. also did Skellig. And then he came to me with this play called Shabin last year. Or no, two years ago now. Um, and I thought the script was amazing. So um, we decided to do that together. And, and now this. I remember him saying something to me when I've been in the rehearsal room that <laughs> you you are a great maker of rooms. That's that's what he <laughs> described you as. That's that's sort of him doing a backhanded compliment, I think. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I have beautiful rooms. <laughs> Thank you. I do. I do like a room. There's a bit of a problem with rooms, which is that once you're a designer that does rooms, yeah. it's really hard to <laughs> get out of rooms. Um, but for me, I think that the attraction to rooms has always been the idea of what the outside world is, and I think that's why my rooms don't tend to be boxed up and clean mm-hmm. and simple and instead have this big kind of uh, oppressive or magical quality bleeding in from the outside. Yeah. Uh, God, I hope that doesn't sound too That sounds big-headed. good to me. That sounds good to me. <laughs> I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those rooms because mm-hmm. some of our listeners will have seen Shabin. Shabin did really well. Great show. We all love Shabin. It was wonderful. Tell us a little bit about how you like brought that show to life. Well, that's that was a really lovely room to design because that room is a totally safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, a safe space that has a brick thrown through a window and becomes and becomes a, a permeated, you know, um, liminal space where suddenly they're they're not um, as safe as we thought. And so designing that, what we really wanted to do was to to first of all make the make a party the way you wanted to go. Yeah. That was the headline. That definitely worked. Uh, and and the way we did that, I suppose, is bringing this, the room out quite a lot into the auditorium. Yeah. It's a big apron on it, uh, yeah. a lovely thrust. That means that when they're partying, it really feels like they're, they're with us, they're in amongst yeah. us. Um, and it also means that, yeah, when we kabuki dropped that curtain at the back, uh-huh. which is just, you know really fast letting go of a curtain you you know it's like having the rug pulled out from under you and that felt like a really powerful thing to be able to do um with that story since you did Shabin, you Mm -hmm. uh designed killer joe yes in 2018 tell us a little bit about that because that's a different era that you were designing for yeah well they were actually at the same time they were in rehearsals okay so it was it was a funny one because it that's my first uh, West End mm-hmm. show. You d- your first West End's kind of a big one, and um, the play itself is really tough and knotty. Mm. And you know you're watching a young woman essentially be sold uh, and then sexually abused, and grappling with the magnitude of that uh, when that character doesn't have many lines, mm-hmm. especially you know as a young woman, it's really tough to feel like what can we do? And so really, the the in with that 
you know, in the same vein of it's a party you want to go to. Yeah. This was just how can we create a space which is about that character? Uh, and so we built this. We we bought these two trailers uh-huh. and cut them up. The workshop hated me. It was brilliant. <laughs> uh, they found a rat's nest under wow. one of the sofas. What a great thing to find. A haunted doll in one of the bathrooms. Oh. Yeah, it was a really... This is unpleasant. No, no. Not nice. It wasn't the glamorous West End debut I thought <laughs> it would be. But we built these trailers and then we, we reinforced them so that Dottie could climb all over the roofs cool. and she could interact with the telephone wires and she could, yeah, crawl around in the dirt. She could climb up onto the kitchen counters. It felt like a real... A space that was owned by her, uh, which was a nice thing to do for that poor character really (laughs) and now you're moving on Mm -hmm. we're one night in Miami now yes that's your most recent design that you've been working on (laughs) I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about how you've brought that to life because you brought 1964 Miami to Nottingham Playhouse yeah well yeah hopefully it feels really weird sort of talking about it when it when it we haven't quite done it yet. Yeah, you're like um, just it's a little bit scary. It's like the precipice. Um, hopefully, the the room itself is kind of like me and Matthew have been saying. It's sort of the opposite of Shabin. Instead of a room where you know the whole world is invited, mm. this is we are lifting a wall on a doll's house, yeah. and we're getting to see inside a really special conversation. Definitely, there's a voyeurism about the script, and and it's a space that that we don't hear from enough and that we want to hear from more mm. and and the characters go on a journey in the room and so really for me it was just first of all about getting out the way and mm-hmm. letting that script do everything it needs yeah. to um but also about giving them a a, a, a little shoebox for that story to play out in yeah and uh, and to then also try and get some of that Miami vibe I mean me and Matthew he's brilliant at letting me slightly turn up the the uh, intensity yeah so we've got the most beautiful sort of sun-kissed pastel colors and They're beautiful colors thank you really yeah nice. it's it's the painters have done the most amazing job yeah. and um and it's a nice little fancy world to go and and go and hear a story in you have to be really true to the 1960s, haven't you? Because mm. it's set in 1964. I, I've been speaking to the props guys. Oh, uh, yeah, and yeah. And they've been talking about <laughs> the work they've been putting in to get the fridge and the cooker and oh, things like that right. That is that really fridge. important to you? What Nathan has done with that fridge is a, a, truly a work of art. That, yeah. that I mean, it should be mounted in the foyer <laughs> after the show. Tell the listeners a little bit about what's happened with that fridge because so, it came in <laughs> in a slightly different state than it's in now. The journey of that fridge, you know, as as it gets its stage debut, it becomes a <laughs> becomes an actor in its own right. Yeah. Um, it came in covered in rust, battered up, beaten up. The perfect era. I think it was a company that also manufactured to America, so we know mm-hmm. it. You know, it absolutely would be the fridge, in the right place, yeah. Um, but it was in a sorry state of affairs, and he's he's buffed it, he's sanded it, he's uh, knocked all of the dents out of it, and then he's painted it. We found this amazing. Uh, he's found this beautiful duck egg blue and a cream that he's also painted the cooker in. Yeah. So that there's all of the all of the objects are like singing in this beautiful 1960s harmony together, and it's just uh, yeah, really wonderful, really exciting. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I get really passionate about objects. It's I think that's sad. good. It sounds like you have to. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a certain bit of the set or something that the actors are going to be interacting with in the show that you're most looking forward to seeing seeing take place? Obviously the fridge. 
I can't wait to see them open it and reveal the inside, which has all been handmade by Nathan beautifully. For me, and this is a really slightly sad answer, there's a lot that's gone into the bathroom. It's gorgeous (laughs) in there, pinks and greens. And I think it's going to be really lovely to watch people go off stage, still be seen and have a private moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited to see how they deal with that. And the walkway itself, there's a, there's a big strip of expansive walkway that you've got to go down to get into the house. And I just think it's going to be amazing to watch them get that sense of anticipation as they're running up to the door or they're walking away in a, in a huff or whatever's happening. Yeah. So that's, you show the inside and the out, don't you, in the yeah, show? Yeah, big time. Because the outside world is what they're talking about. And so to ignore that would be... Yeah, silly. Mm-hmm. And are there any specific references that you've like brought forward for this? Because you must have had to do a lot of research on the era. Yeah. Well, the era references, apart from looking at the photos of those men, mm-hmm. of the actual motel, which there's, it still exists, you yeah. can go there. Um, still waiting for Nottingham to fly us out on a research <laughs> trip. There was a lot, actually, of artists that we looked at this and architecture. There's an art architect called um, Barragan who did these amazing houses in Mexico built on top of lava huge pink houses with big uh, squares of light or square holes I should say for Mm. light to pour in there's also David Hockney's uh, The Splash. Yeah, I can see that yeah. in the colours especially. That feels like I'm giving away like (laughs) all of my secrets because it's even got a palm tree Oh, I, yeah, even got a palm tree. <laughs> I think you're safe to say that. I a can palm say there's a palm tree. tree. It's Miami. It's a tiny palm tree. You won't even notice it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so so that was a brilliant reference because then I could take that to Nathan and the props and to the set builders and go, let's get all our colours from this beautiful palette. Those those were two really big references, I think. What about the clothing in the show? Because yeah. that must have been quite cool working with that because they're iconic people. Yeah. You kind of have an image of what maybe these people are wearing. It's a funny one, that, because I've not... I could be wrong. I don't think I've done a a thing where the real people exist Mm. before. And I actually... Although it was very rewarding rewarding when we found the right thing, it was slightly difficult because it meant that you can't play as much with with characterization Mm -hmm. or um, making maybe slightly bolder choices. You know, it was quite a prescriptive process um, for obvious reasons. But I hope we've done them justice. And the times that we have strayed a little bit are nice little, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of trills on the costume as opposed to ruining the character um, or or getting it wrong, I suppose, which is the big fear in costume. So we're in tech now. You've Mm -hmm. got a week of tech and Mm -hmm. the show opens this Friday. Oh, my God. How are you feeling in the rest of it? this Friday? It's this Friday, your first show. Okay. (laughs) It's going to be great. It is. No, I'm feeling good. It's, it's, you never know. With text, it's always that thing where it will take us. So we'll have five text sessions, five text sessions mm-hmm. uh, where we just work through the play beat by beat and, and, and light it and put sound to it. And it's always the case that the first 30 seconds will take an entire tech session. <laughs> always. And then once we're in the rhythm. So by this evening, I'll be much more relaxed. It's just that first tech session, which is always yeah. tends to be people being grumpy and me running back and forth to the stage, <laughs> moving pillows incrementally. But um... <laughs> what, what does a designer, for people that don't know, mm. what's a designer's role during tech then? Because you've worked up to this point. It's a it's a funny one because it, tech really is a lot more in many ways for um, sound and lighting and for costume mm-hmm. if there are quick changes. But this 
uh, doesn't have any. So it's very much for them. For me, it's much more about sitting back, looking at the set and and writing down the most minute, detailed, um, incredibly boring uh, things that will make you very unpopular notes to give to, uh, you know, the props team, the the set painters, the builders. And that'll be like, you know, I can see a glimmer of light coming through this part of the door and they'll put a little bit of blue tack on it. So it's like the final tweaks. It's just, yeah, all those details that just... really bring the world into um, into a reality. Well, I know everyone here in the building is really excited to see it. Oh, good. And it's off on tour as well, which yeah. is amazing. So your set's going on tour. Yeah. I, I have no idea what it's going to look like in those very different spaces. Will you I'm, get up <laughs> to the spaces? Hopefully, Bristol yeah. Bristol and Manchester. Hopefully. Um, it'd just be lovely to see that tiny box sit in different spaces. Yeah. It's going to do nuts things. Fantastic. Um, but yeah what's what's next for you I'm doing a show at the Royal Court which is in rehearsals at the moment the end of history which is really exciting uh, and then I'm doing a show at the Edinburgh Festival in the Traverse well no yeah I can't say that's I keep doing spoilers some <laughs> other stuff some cool things fantastic <laughs> well thanks very much for your time Grace thank you so much for and we hope to see you again soon thank you thank you So a lovely chat there with Grace, a real advocate of the magic trick of theatre design. She was very modest, I thought. We should point out that she did actually win the Lindbury Prize in 2015 for a production of St Joan at the Belfast Lyric. You may very well have enjoyed her work here in Shabin or East is East. Either way, you have a treat for your eyes when you come and see One Night in Miami. It looks fantastic. Really looking forward to it. So that about wraps it up for this edition of Nottingham Playcast. But Fraser, what do we have coming up next time? Oh, we've got exciting stuff next month. We are going to be speaking to the creative team and the community choir and company of Corinboy. That is directed by our very own Adam Penford. And it's very exciting. So we're going to be speaking to some of the cast some of the creatives, and hopefully we're going to find out about how the process is going and what we can expect in the Albert Hall next door. Another really fascinating project on an epic scale this time. So Certainly is. We look forward to that. Please come back next time for all things Corin Boy. Please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>